working closely and hand in hand with a patient. And it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing lifetime thing, specifically for the bowels, you know, as the patient goes from acute to chronic and also as the, the patient ages. So the regimen that's working now might not be working in a month's time and it has to change. And of course, having them be able to self-manage as well is important, you know, with education and how they want to manage themselves as best as possible to keep themselves healthy. In my perspective, I think the most important thing is patient education. Uh, because unless they understand what has happened to them following a life-changing injury, like a spinal cord damage, it is very difficult for them to accept it. So patient education, reassurance, and empowerment, I think those are the most important things. So the body has completely changed. The physiology has changed. So empowering them with the knowledge, reassuring them that there is still life after spinal cord injury, and, and giving them all the information that is out there, evidence-based information that's out there to help them deal with it. I think those are the key factors in managing things in the long term, especially with the bladder and bowels. A very warm welcome to this episode of SEI Care, What Really Matters. I am Grant Friedrich, Clinical Relations Manager for WellSpec US. And it is an honor to be the host for this podcast episode as we continue our discussion on the importance of patient-centered care for neurogenic bladder and bowel management with a particular focus on clinical practice. And to help us do that today, I am joined by two experts within their fields, Dr. Enrico Amarati and Veronica Gang. Dr. Amarati is currently a medical doctor at the Complex Structure of Neurourology of the Orthopedic Trauma Center unipolar spinal unit of the Cita de la Salute e della Scienza di Torino. He specializes in the clinical evaluation and treatment of male and female urinary incontinence, urogynecology, the management of chronic pelvic pain, and in neurourology. He deals with urodynamic and video urodynamic exams. He is the author and co-author of many publications in indexed international journals, about urinary incontinence, neurourology, and sacral neuromodulation. Our other guest is Veronica Gang, and she's the head of the Advisory Center for Nutrition and Digestion for Spinal Cord Injured People in Lubbock, Germany, and specializes in coaching for people with nutrition or bowel problems. She's also chair of various work groups for bladder and bowel management and nutrition, and a teacher and speaker for various topics in SCI especially bowel and bladder management and stress management, burnout, and aging. Veronica has also authored and co-authored numerous books, including Paraplegia, Explained in an Understandable Way, published in 2021. A warm welcome to both of you. So before we start our discussion today, you heard two quotes played at the beginning of this podcast. These quotes were from Dr. Ram Hariharan, and Dr. Gianna Rodriguez as they discussed the importance of patient-centered care and neurogenic bladder and bowel management during the recent webinar produced by ISCOS and WellSpec. We will place a link to this webinar in the show notes, and we will continue this discussion today. The question that I asked uh, during that webinar to those two doctors was, what are your key factors for keeping up good adherence or compliance for bladder and bowel management? 
Veronica and Dr. Amarati. I would like to ask each of you your thoughts on this question. Thank you for inviting me for this podcast, and I'm glad to be here and give some statements to your questions. I think my key factors for um, good functioning bowel and bladder management is the patient, um, him or herself, that they know what they have to do, that they uh, get the well-being, that they get healthy. I think some factors for both, for bladder as well as bowel, are to practice things which match to each patient. For example, they have to get some rhythm for the bowel and bladder emptying. They need some rhythm for nutrition as well as drinking. And I think if they have rhythm for these topics, they know how good their system for, for digestion and as well as bladder emptying can happen. I think the other aspect, they need discipline. A, a spinal cord injured person, for example, need a lot of discipline. They have to look for their body. They don't have sensibility. Um, they have to look to prevent pressure sores, thrombosis and things like this. And also they have to look to their good functioning of bladder and bowel for their lifelong time. Okay, great. Thank you, Veronica. Dr. Amarati, same question. Key factors for keeping up good adherence, compliance for bladder and bowel management? Hello, and thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I think I completely agree with what the other speakers have said, and I think that a good patient education is fundamental because we have to give the patient all the tools he needs to achieve a proper bladder and bowel management. I think that as clinicians, we have to listen to the patients because we need to understand their point of view, their desires, their emotions, and it may help achieving a proper state of well-being, not just the clinical factors, signs, and symptoms. And then it is fundamental to have a periodic re-evaluation of the situation because we are dealing with chronic situations. And so the picture that we see today may not be the same that we will see in the future. And so we have to discuss it again and again with the patient and be ready to change our mind and the patient mind. Great, thank you. Yeah, I've heard that discussed before too, that, that this is an evolving situation with patients, right? It's not one solution right now fits everything for their entire life. So you definitely have to keep up with them. And I think it's important, as you mentioned too, both of you, routine, discipline, and listening to the patient, right? Why do you think it's important to involve the patient in your healthcare discussions, your healthcare decisions? I think it is fundamental. And I think clinicians and patients have two completely different points of view. Because we have in mind clinical data. We think to the spinal cord injury level, we think to the completeness of the lesion, is this a reflexive or a reflexive bowel on or, or bladder? But the patient has just in his mind desires, he has expectations, he has a family, he has a work, he wants to travel, he has something else in his mind. It does not think to symptoms. And if we want to achieve a good adherence to the treatment, we have to inform and involve the patient. And this may also have to individualize the treatment for the single patient, because we have to listen to him, we know his desires, and we know how we can help him in the clinical way to achieve his goals and his objectives. We have a lesson from our experience in the transitional care with patients with spina bifida, and there is 
a huge difference when we deal with children and with adults. Because when we deal with children, they completely rely on us and they do what we say. Okay, because we talk with the parents and they just execute our prescription. With the adult, it's completely another thing because an adult has emotions, has thoughts, has desires, and we have to collaborate and be completely balanced in our relationship with uh, the patient. And I think there is also another problem. There are some patients that just say, okay, you are the doctor and you decide for me. And I think that may be very dangerous because if we do not inform the patient well, and if we do not inform the patient, he may do what we say if we do not involve him, and he may be completely free from complication, but are we sure that he will be happy that we have chosen the right treatment option for him? If we do not involve the patient in the decision, we may not be sure that that is the right decision for that single patient. So involving is fundamental. Thank you, Dr. Marati. Veronica, what would you like to add to that conversation on the uh, importance of involving a patient in the healthcare decisions? I think I agree with, with Dr. Amarati, and I think for me, it's very important to have the same goals. For example, if um, the patient had an idea, he want to travel to Vienna, and I want to travel to Rome, for example, and they are splitting the way, and we have not the same goal, and I'm speaking from my goal, and the patient is speaking from his goal. And so we don't match each other and we don't have the same way to go there. And so I think we have to involve the patients. We have to hear what his ideas for being healthy, for going with his bowel and bladder problems and all the things the patients want to have. And I could give him my experience to say, I think that's the problem you see or you have and you want to, to solve this. And I think you could do this, this, and this. And you could decide what you could do. For example, a patient who said, oh, I don't want to eat fibers because I don't like fibers. I'm not, can say to him, you have to eat fibers every day. That's the wrong way. I think I have to hear he don't want to get fibers. So I have searched for another solution that he also gets a good way of emptying the bowl, for example. For the, for the bowel management. This is the one aspect. And the other aspect, the patient who is a spinal cord injured person, he has a lifelong way for himself. I think he is in the clinical situations, he is a new person who has to deal with his new situation. And if he is 10, 20 or 30 years in the wheelchair, and he has a lot of experience and he has a lot of things he, he knows about his body because he is feeling his own body and the situation he is in. And so I think I often have to hear to the patients what he have did before he coming to this problem, what he tried himself to solve the problems. And then I can give him some experience from my view, with the, with the professional view. And so the patients can maybe, hopefully, solve the problems with these ideas together. It sounds like listening to your patients is, is key, yeah. one of the key factors. I agree. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Veronica. With involving them in the healthcare decisions, are you seeing a, an improved adherence when you involve the patient? Absolutely, yes. If I can start up with an example, when you ride a motorbike, you have to wear a helmet. And you may do this for two reasons. 
because the laws say so, and if you don't do it, you will get a fine. But what will happen is that when you are in front of the policeman, you will have your helmet on. But when you turn the corner, you will remove it. And if you have a motorbike accident, you will get hurt. But if you know why you are wearing it, because it's for your safety, then you will always wear it. And if you have an accident, you will be safe. We have to do the same thing for the bladder and the bowel. We have to teach the patient involved and tell the patient why we are telling you to do something, because we know the consequences of a wrong management. And if they are aware of the situation and of also the negative things that can happen in case they have a wrong management, then they will be more keen in doing something that may be invasive, time-consuming. Sometimes it may hurt in somehow. So I think that if we involve the patient and tell them everything in, in the good and good and bad news, they will be with us and they will have a better adherence to the treatment. Thank you, Dr. Marati. Uh, Veronica, are you seeing uh, uh, improved adherence when uh, you involve the patient in those healthcare decisions? Yes, of course. I see that. And I think the aspect from Dr. Amurati with knowledge, giving knowledge to the patient, what happens with his body and with his new situation being spinal cord injured and have problems with, with bladder and bowel dysfunction. And if the patients know how the things are functioning, it's much more better to get him to get together with him to goals or to make a way to make it possible to have a, a worthful life, for example. And I think that the adherence is not often there at the beginning of the conversation with the patient, but you can get it. And I often try to deal with the patients. The patients are very critical. They talk about a, a topic which is really a taboo topic, and you don't speak about this if you have no problems with that. And they are very skeptical. Why should it happen now in a good way after I tried it for myself for five, four years and things like this? And so I make some deals and say, like, okay, I hear you are not really happy with this, with this solution. I, I will tell you or with this way you have to go and the plans and the in interventions you have to do. But I make a deal with you. We'll try it for two weeks and we get a phone call. And if you can say that there's nothing happens, we stop it absolutely at this day. But if we have any aspect that there is some better uh, situation, then we go further on. And so I make some deals and make be that is on the, on the beginning at the talk. Maybe that's just after half a year when they're calling back. And sometimes I also have to tell the patients, if you have a patient for four months, that in the fifth month, he said, ah, I'm not so really happy. Then I have to go back and say to him, um, you know where, you, where we started our progress? And um, then he said, oh, yes, that's right. If he is not happy because he has to go to the toilet for about 40 minutes. They said, that's right. That's a long time. But you can remember when we are starting, you are sitting two or three hours on the toilet. And then the patient says, oh, yes, you are right. So the patients also forget things. And sometimes you have to uh, remember them that we have started on another way and we have a lot of improvement in this time. And I think dealing with the patient and, and um, talking with the patients is really important to get adherence.
Thank you, Veronica. I guess I didn't realize that you had to be such a good negotiator <laughs> with your patients. <laughs> I've never seen that in the skill set of nursing, but I'm, I'm sure it's up there. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about education, the importance of that and having your patients understand uh, their treatment. With that, how do you educate your patients with regard to bowel and bladder management? What methods have been most effective? So I think there are different ways to give education. And I think we have some brochures, for example, with some content about bowel management, about nutrition. And I think to ask the patient things, and when he don't have an answer on that, you can explain him how things are functioning. I think the, the direct um, talk with the patients to give him some ideas how his system functioning or what are the, the mistakes that it is doesn't functioning very well, I think that uh, that's uh, help, very helpful. Ask the patients whether he has understand all the things you have explained him. That's at the end of, of every talk, I ask whether the patients have questions, if they have understand the thing. And maybe that I also say, if you get questions after one week, we have had our talk, you can send me an email, uh, you can write it down for our next talk together, that you can uh, have some, some answers on your new questions coming up if you are thinking about the topics. And I think the... Bladder management in Germany, for example, is very well um, personal um, situated. We have neurologists in every clinic for spinal cord injured people, but we have no bowel specialist in every clinic. And I think this topic has the difference between bladder and bowel. And we try to do education on different levels. I also educate person which get experts in neurogenic bowel dysfunction that they can, like a snowball system, if I give my experience and my knowledge to other peoples, they could give it to other peoples. And so we want to arise the knowledge about bowel dysfunction and bowel management. Thank you, Veronica. So it sounds like you might be using a little bit of anatomy for the person to understand their system. I think the anatomy and as well the, the physiology. Right. That's also, um, and, and what happens if there's a spinal cord injury? If you have patients who are a long time in the wheelchair, they said, for example, but my colleague, they have no problems with that. And it's like, yes, your colleague has another level of injury, for example. And then it much, much not that you can, can make the, the comparison between two or three different high-level uh, patients so that you could give him the answer. It depends on the level of injury. You have your problems. Yeah. So they all understand where they're at individually. And yeah. so you can't always compare yourself to somebody else because their situation is completely different. Thank you. Dr. Amarati, what methods of education have been most effective with you and your patients? Well, I completely agree with what Veronica Gang just, just said. I think the important thing is to individualize the educational process because it should be based on age, education level, probably also cognitive status. One thing that is changing in the spinal cord injury scenario is the change in epidemiology. We have, for example, a lot of older patients with vascular damages, and they may have cognitive impairment. And so it is more difficult to educate the patient. And we do not have to educate the patient, but we have to educate the caregiver that have to, to deal with the patient. So it is even more complex. And then I think that with regard to the spinal cord injury is that 
everything in the life of the patient immediately changes in a second. And so I think it is very important, the timing of the education, because in a moment, the, the patient finds himself in an intensive care unit, then in a spinal cord unit with full of nurses, doctors, urologists, and everything easy. And I think that is the right moment just to analyze the anatomical things, the pathophysiology. Okay, this is what happened to you. And I leave all the rest for when the patient goes home and deals with everyday life, with problems, with going outside, with dealing with a family, probably also with the sexual life, for example, with something else that it could not face inside the hospital. And that is the moment to go further in education. Because if I give him too many information, I, I think he may be tilting. And so I, I think the key point is individualized with the patient so that education I give can be also received and understood by patients and the timing to give the right information in the right moment. If you do this wrongly, it may be a mess because you get too many information, you generate confusion, and probably the patient will have a bad management in, in the end. If you, if you did a great job in telling him everything. Thank you, Dr. Amrati. Yeah, it sounds like, especially right after injury, you're going to be overwhelmed with a lot of different thoughts. And, and if you're trying to teach somebody too many things at that point in time, they're probably going to remember half of it, if even that amount. So that sounds great. Veronica, you mentioned that patients tend to forget where they've been, right? So like they'll come in and say, well, this isn't working. Look at, look at how bad this is. And it's like, well, you know, you used to sit two to three hours on the toilet. Now you're down to 45 minutes. So that gets me to this question of, of setting goals for people. We talked in the last webinar about goal attainment scaling, which is providing individual goals with treatments and picking from a menu of goals that were determined by clinicians and people with spinal cord injury. And I'm just wondering, is that something that you use in your practice, setting goals with the patient, setting markers, key performance indicators, basically on how those goals are obtained and, and specifically what the, you know, how the patient determines what a goal is, right? Uh, you mentioned trap as a destination. So do you use this kind of goal attainment scaling or goals in your, in your practice? Yes, of course, I use goals but I don't have any scale of this topic. I think I make individual goals. For example, if a patient is calling me and he has problem with constipation, I, I give him uh, three things to do and not 10. I think I have to focus on two or three things which the patient could do in a regular way and he is not overwhelmed with, oh, what I have to do now. I think three things he could, could manage. And then make a, a, a recall at two weeks, for example, and say, in, in, in two weeks, I want to know this, this, and this from you. So he can manage it in short steps. Sometimes I think I, I have a call back in one week. Otherwise, I have four weeks. If the patient has, is very anxious or I have fear that, oh, if there happens anything and if it's coming to an incontinence and I think, no, you could try it and I, I can promise you with this aspect, it will get better, but no incontinence, for example. Then I will make a call back at, at one week. And then I will hear what happens. And if this 
match very well in the first time. And I don't go to make a lot of experiments in the beginning of our conversation, our communication. If I have some topics which are sure, which went well. So I, I know there is some, some guarantee that there is the first deal I make with the patients get well. And then the patients get, he is very impressed and said, oh, that's a good thing to be by you in the uh, advice center and get some confidence um, that he will come back with the call and things like this. And I think that's different from patient to patient. You have patient, they have a lot of fear. Others, there is the wife, the, the motor who calling me, but I say, I don't want to talk with the wife. I want to talk from, with the wife and the patient. And then I think, okay, there is a, is a wife who is looking for the patient. It, maybe I have four weeks time until calling back. And otherwise, if the patient is very stressed and I think, okay, it will be better calling him back at one week. So I think it's very individual and not one goal overall. It sounds like you have to win some trust with your patients when you devise a treatment plan or, or give them advice. You know, you, you kind of have to win them over a little bit sometimes, which is understandable. Especially some people are very skeptical, for sure, especially after a spinal cord injury. Otherwise, you lost the patients. So I think I, I try to get some, some deals with them and that they are um, staying by me. Right, right. Thank you, Veronica. Uh, Dr. Emirati, what about your practice? Do you use something like goal attainment scaling or do you use goals and how do you set the goals and how do you work with the patient on that? I think it is fundamental to work with goals. And I personally do not use a list uh, from which the patient can choose. But when I talk to the patient, I try always to use open questions so that the patient is free to talk. And tell not just, yes, I have the symptom, but yes, but I have the symptom and it impairs me doing something. I have a symptom and I feel. So I just try to also understand what is the psychological consequence of the symptom and not just be a neurologist that treats urinary tract infections that keeps the uppers or but that helps the patient in his everyday life. And I think there has to be an interconnection with the patient. And all patients are different because, as we said before, age is different, social status is different, and probably all the goals that we have set together will not be obtained. Some will be, some will not. Something may happen. If there is a complication, probably the patient will not reach all the goals he had in his mind. But having a periodical re-evaluation with the patient of the situation and talking about what he wants in his life, what are his expectations, ask them directly because probably they expect from a doctor to be just a doctor, just to ask medical questions and give exams. They come with papers and numbers and they just give them to you. But we need to be more for the patient. We are, we are something more than just clinician and, and probably it, is that why they rely completely on us, even for other problems. Like Veronica again said that in Germany there is this issue, let's say, with the management of bowel that is underrepresented. For example, many patients in my spinal cord unit for the bowel management ask to us that are urologists and we try to help them, but they ask to us even if they can make the the flu vaccination, for example, because they trust on us, because they listen to them. And we know 
well, I think maybe it's too much if they say that we know what is good for them. But probably it is, because we are more than just executioners of medical maneuvers or reading exams. That's the key point, I think, of goals, just going a step further from the clinical setting. Are you finding that more difficult these days? I mean, I, I know here in the U.S., we have less, less time with the doctor. If you get 20 minutes with a doctor uh, and you express yourself, you, you feel lucky. So I don't know if that's the case with you guys. You feel like you're having less and less time with the patient. So having that more in-depth discussion, you know, how do you manage that? How do you get that information out of a patient? And are you having issues with time with your patients, Dr. Amirati? Well, I think it's also probably the experience is the key factor because actually I'm always late with my work. So sometimes I start thinking, okay, I just have 10 minutes. I will be very quickly. And at the end, it takes maybe half an hour talking with the patient. But you just have to focus on the problem. I think that focusing and giving full attention to the patient may help while spending the time together with the patient. So I think even if you don't have too much time, you can spend that time in an excellent way. But I think that the experience is the key factor. And probably as a work in a spinal cord unit, having to deal every day with similar problems and with similar situation helps me to manage the next time in an easier way and in a quicker way. Because I think that if this patient that is peculiar goes in another setting, he may have more difficulties in having answers and probably he will not get enough listening. Great. Veronica, what do you say about time management that you have to deal with with patients on a daily basis? I think I had different views. I see the, the clinical aspects that the spinal cord injured people at the beginning when I started in the spinal cord injury field, they are staying in the hospital for six months, for nine, 10, 11 months. And now they have to go outside after 99 days and, and things like this. And I think the time is very short that the patient can recognize all the things what happens with him and his body and his new situation. That's the problem also for the bladder and the bowel management, I think so. They have not a lot of experience that there happened something wrong because they are in the clinical uh, situation. And I'm in a comfortable way of, or in a comfortable situation. I'm working in a foundation. The foundation pays my salary. And uh, I have not checked how many time I have for a patient. If a patient has a problem, I could take this time. And if I know it's not enough, I could say to my boss, oh, I think we need some more people to do this work because the foundation will give a meaningful life to the patients or to the spinal cord injured people. And so I could offer the time the patients need. And that's a very comfortable situation, but I'm glad to have this job and can help the people in this way. Well, that's great that you were able to add more time if you need it. I think that's difficult for a lot of people these days, but I think it's important. And I think what you guys mentioned about listening and, and individualizing goals for patients is, is critical to the outcomes for them. If you have patients that come in with unrealistic expectations, how do you deal with something like that? Veronica, do you want to start with that one? In the, in, the very, in the beginning of our conversation, I always say, I can't do wonders. 
I think it's not possible that I say snip and all happens very well. I think you have to work with me. I can give you some explanations. What I think could help you, but the work you have to do. And I give something like housework for the patients. I think your housework until our next phone call is point one, two, and three. And I split the, the big, big expectations into small steps and going step by step. So how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? <laughs> yes, I, I don't. Yes, I don't have to look for the time if I need a half and half a year for that. That's okay. So setting setting realistic expectations, you're kind of good at managing expectations as well, as well as negotiating. So that's great. Dr. Amirati, if you could come across some unrealistic expectations from your patients. Well, actually, when my when one of my patients have unrealistic expectation, I think if I have done something wrong, because probably there is a communication problem between me and the patient. Because I start thinking if I am not communicating well to him, so he may not have understood what I am telling him. And so I have to try to tell the thing easier, make examples, try to be more realistic in what he can do or what he can't do. Or if there is another problem that the patient does not want to accept the truth, that the truth can hurt sometimes. And so there can be a negation of this situation. And so I have to understand if the patient does not want to communicate, if there is a barrier. And in that case, it is really hard to break this unrealistic expectation because the patient is not listening to me. I can make you an example. I had a young guy, he was in his 16 years old. He was paraplegic after a traumatic injury and he had an overwhelming mother that was not accepting the situation. And she wanted and she expected him to void spontaneously. This guy had urinary leakage and it was not acceptable at 16 years to, to leak urine. And I wanted to put him under antimuscarinics and clean it with catheterization to be dry. But she was not accepting the situation. She didn't want to start the treatment because she feared that it could prevent a going back to spontaneous micturition. And there was this barrier that could not be resolved. So I had to find out something. And in that case, there is no solution for everything. I had a videodynamic exam. I demonstrated the presence of neurogenic detrusor of activity. And I used a clinical thing. I said, okay, there is a problem. Look at this. I showed that there was a graph with something wrong. And she accepted it, and then we could start the therapy. And that was very different. I had another guy, he was in his 40s, he was paraplegic. He had a bowel that was terribly uh, managed. He alternated constipation with passing stool every 10 days, then he had incontinence, it was a terrible situation. I had him have an X-ray with radiopath markers, and all the markers were in the descending column. So I said, okay, transamer irrigation is the best treatment for you. It may help you. He was completely convinced that the antimuscarinic was the reason of his constipation. And he wanted it to be changed from oxybutynin to something else. And he was not listening to me. So what I had to do is come to a compromise. And I said, okay, I will change the oxybutynin with something else. And now that I have changed drug, did your bowel change? No. 
okay, now you can listen to me. I have listened to you. We have done what you wanted. Now, please listen to me. And I sent him to Transanalytication, and now it's going better. I think it's difficult to deal with the patient, and there is not a recipe that is good for everybody. I think that, again, listening and knowing that is important because the solution is different from patient to patient. Sounds like you had to do some of the negotiating and managing expectations and building some trust as well in that in a couple of those patient examples. So thank you for that. I got one more question here. You know, talking about managing unrealistic expectations and things like that with patients. How do you handle patients that have really just given up, have no motivation, and don't really want to choose any goals? Veronica, have you had that experience and, and how do you handle that? I think um, I have the experience that I have patients who are very depressive or thinking that's not really a good way to live and things like this. In my situation now in the advice center, the patients have to call me and they have to be active that they want to solve their problems. So I see the patients who have recognized I have a problem and calling me for some help. I think that's another situation than being in a clinic and see the patient is not not really motivated to do things and we have to try it because he's in the clinical situation. So I think it's another way of working with the patients. And sometimes I lost patients. If I am ending the first talk with the patients, I make a new date for a second uh, talk. And maybe I don't get the patients on the phone, for example. And I try it for three times and then I let it be. I think, okay, the patients don't want to get more help or he's thinking about other ideas. And then I, I let him go. Maybe two years later, he is calling back because he thought, oh, I tried a lot of things and nobody could help me. Please, could you help me again? And I think that's the part of the patients that he see. I will try it again. And if a patient is very depressive, I could try to do little things, how to get him out of this. In our foundation, for example, we also get other topics. We get topics for creativity, topics for being mobile in the, in the wheelchair, or things like this that I try to, to get him activate to come into our house because we also have a hotel. And then if he is here, we can try to get him out of this hole he is, he is in. Sometimes it went well, but sometimes I don't reach the, the people. And I can't solve all problems from the whole world. But if I think 80% to 90%, that's really good. And the others, maybe five of them coming back and have other problems as well. And 5% I lost. But I think that's, a, for me, it's a balance, which is fine. Yeah, well, that's a pretty good statistic, I would say, in, in, in success there. But you can't help everyone, especially if they don't really want to help themselves at all. Maybe I tried my network and I have a network with the whole centers for spinal cord injury in Germany, Switzerland and Austria. And I try to bring them into a rehabilitation center, for example, because I can't solve the problems for my own. And I try to get things like this. For example, I see there's a big bowel problem. I could solve this, but there's the bladder problem is much more spectacular. And then I think he has to go to a neurologist, for example, and going to a hospital to learn things which I can't do in my advice center. Thank you, Veronica. Uh, Dr. Amirati, patients have given up, have no motivation. How do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, that is not that much uncommon with patients with a chronic pathology that 
every now and then they feel depressed and they don't want to get help anymore. What I think is that the patient decision must always be respected. I have a duty that is to inform the patient. I have to answer all questions, tell the patient what the situation is and what the consequences of a specific management may be. But then if I know that the patient has completely understood what I am telling him and he does not want to do this, I have to accept. But I don't have to abandon that patient because I know that sooner or later he may need our help again and he may come back. And I have to be there ready. So I don't have to have prejudice or I need to be always empathic with the patient, understand what may happen in his mind and accept it. So if he does not want it, I'm not insisting with them, but if they change their mind, I am there for helping them. I can make an example. I have a couple of female patients with an indwelling ureteral catheter that develops some iatrogenic hypospadia that sometimes are very severe and reach the blood neck. And they have a very severe incontinence that sometimes also the balloon of the catheter comes out. And, and you tell these patients, okay, if urinary diversion is the only solution for you if they don't want it. But then if you wait, they may develop complications, for example, skin ulcer that do not heal with the urinary incontinence in the sacral area. And then when they develop the complication, they say, okay, I'm in a very bad situation. Now I want to have major surgery. I want to slow the problem. And even if you know that probably the patient has got a wrong decision in that moment, you have to be there as well and help the patient either way. Thank you, Dr. Amirati. I think another aspect I often use is the concept of the peer counseling that I ask. I have a lot of patients I know. And sometimes if this is a very good person, I ask them whether they would give me some, some help if I have a problematic patient. And uh, I think, okay, I have a tetraplegic patient, I have a wife in my head or a patient with a, with a lower or incomplete lesion. And so I could match patients together, I ask. And I think that's very helpful that they see that people in the same situation uh, have something, solutions for them. I could talk many, many hours. It's not the same if I, as a person who can walk, talk to a person in the wheelchair. And so it's much better to have peers to use this as one kind of therapy, for example. Yeah. You know, some people, once they see somebody else in their same situation and it's being successful, then they would say that, hey, they, they might believe that more than you, right? Than me, yeah. Okay. Well, great. Thank you, Veronica. So I think we're pretty much running out of time here. So I'm just going to say thank you both for this great discussion today. So we've kind of gone through the importance of, you know, including the patient in the healthcare decisions, setting up realistic goals, that you need to individualize those goals to each particular patient. Sometimes the timing of goals, the timing of education is very important, that you have to be a little bit of a negotiator as a clinician with your patients at certain times. But it is really important to really include that patient in, in all the steps along the way of their care. Thank you, both of you, so much today for your time. It's been a fantastic discussion. We hope you have enjoyed listening to our podcast today. I've enjoyed being your host and being part of this discussion. As always, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email them to admin at iscos.com.
www.org.uk. You will find this podcast available with all the major podcast providers. And do remember to subscribe. Again, thank you both, Dr. Amirati and Veronica Gang, for joining us today. Thanks once again for everybody for listening, and bye for now.